Two's and strike. And here is pitch number two. With one blast of his bat. They were riding on an open automobile when the shots were fired. Nervous, you can yell fire in a crowded theater if you're on stage, but don't do it off stage. The theater is make-believe, that's where it's at. I seem somehow to recognize it. I don't mean I know who was speaking. It was the tone I recognized, the touching quality of some half-remembered and tender event, even through the static. Welcome to Don DeLillo Should Win the Nobel Prize. I'm Mike Strait. And I'm Jeff Sievers. For this episode, Rachel and Street, Jeff and I are introducing a new segment in our introduction. It's called the three-minute summary. Yeah, TMS. It's it's harder than it sounds, but we are going to summarize the major plot points, hopefully only that, three minutes or less. It's, It's a tough venture, but... The reason we're doing this is to give new listeners, new readers to DeLillo a head start, kind of a, a quick start, and also give long-term readers of DeLillo who haven't read this book uh, a bit of a refresher, also just to challenge ourselves. Yeah, who haven't read it recently, I mean, years ago, you know, which is uh, often true for us before we get to do these episodes. Yeah. It's also a challenge for us because uh, with two-hour episodes, it's surprisingly challenging to... Uh, to be on the clock. To make sure it's not the EMS, the eight-minute summary, the 12-minute summary. So uh, that would work. TMS would, could be a 12-minute summary, but we're going to try for three. Take 45. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Mike, you're on. Great Jones Street is a story involving Bucky Wonderlick, a rock musician, who escapes all of the trappings of his life, his band, his tour, to hide out in a second floor apartment on a street called Great Jones Street in Lower Manhattan, New York. He does this for, <laughs> you see, already it's interpretation. Uh, why does he do this? That's the subject of the entire book. Regardless, he is hounded by the people that he tried to escape. One of them being Globke, his manager, who hounds him continually for the mountain tapes and for him to basically resume his career. Haynes, a assistant or a lackey of Transparanoia, who becomes a kind of running dog for the package, which is a special drug sought after by the Happy Valley Farm Commune, also entrusted into Bucky's hands by Skippy, one of their followers. Uh, there's also a Zarian who is a musician into blackness as a topic and also interested in the package uh, for bartering purposes. So all these characters are really circulating around Bucky for the length of the novel. It's a very static novel in the sense that it's all mostly takes place in this one apartment. Opal is another character uh, important to mention. She's Bucky's Longtime girlfriend, although she's been off traveling in timeless lands for a long time. She is interested in the drug 
package. She dies suddenly, presumably from a drug habit, drug overdose, but we don't know. Bucky reacts in a muted way to that. And the entire second half of the book really is about Bucky leading up to um, interactions with the Happy Valley Farm Commune. They, in their dog boy manifestation, uh, raid his building, um, going after these packages. They um, ransack the apartments of Fennig uh, and Mickle, the Mickle White boy, uh, neighbors of Bucky. 30 seconds. Bucky ends up being injected with the language drug. And the book comes to a climax on him wandering the streets in such a state and having his language restored. Um, that's really Delilah's main theme, the restoration of language. And that is three minutes. All right. Not bad. Not bad. We have a lot more to say <laughs> in much more detailed, interpretive ways in the episode. I wanted to add one thing mm-hmm. that, uh, to our interpretations. We, I especially say a lot about poetry uh, as a key subject of the novel. And in laying out some poets, Rilke, uh, some Dadaists that uh, Delillo is referring to or interacting with, um, I failed to mention one of the most important, William Butler Yeats, who wrote a poem, The Second Coming, uh, that's very famous, uh, that ends with um, an image of a rough beast slouching toward Bethlehem to be born. This is the reference point for a kind of motto that emerges from the lyrics of Bucky. Uh, beast is loose, least is best. Um, uh, the beast is a satanic uh, figure in Yeats's poem, and I think in Bucky's rendering of it. And, um, well, we have lots of thoughts about uh, demonic, satanic forces in general in DeLillo, and I think that comes up maybe at least once in this episode about Great Jones Street. Anything uh, more to add, Mike, before I think, we get to it? I think we should get to it. All right. Great Jones Street. Third novel, 1973. Mm-hmm. Bilo has produced these first three books at a record clip. I think it counts as a record mm-hmm. because this is April of 73 when he publishes this book. And I think that's less than a year since Endzone, you know, which was itself about a year after Americana. So you have somebody working very fast. And as we've discussed, you know, it, it, it does raise a few questions as to, well, might he have worked on some of these second and third novels or maybe Great Jones Street in particular before, um, you know, publishing Americana Mm -hmm. and, um, perhaps even he certainly returns to some of the themes that he says he, he sort of very much cut out of, um, Americana and that the ideas about, tedium, boredom, time passing slowly. All the same, it's it's just its own beautiful, wonderful <laughs> entity. It's a different direction. It's a different mm-hmm. direction, but working working similar terrain, work, uh, mining similar veins of ore, which is kind of the DDMO, uh, which we've come to know and love. Yeah, yeah. I think what we're able to see in reading the books in succession like this is that they are structured. Similarly, the Americana end zone and Great Jones Street all have kind of at their centers, maybe their structural kind of literal centers or the center of the action, these kind of 
media artifacts, I guess we were saying. Yeah. I like the term artifact because what Delillo is doing here in Great John Street is we're getting it's the next best thing to putting a record itself on on the record player, on the turnstile. The Great John Street. Uh, I mean like these uh the the super slick uh, <laughs> well, we should, but, but like what we're talking about, right, is is David's film right. in in Americana, the part, part two. two of the the football game in Enzo, which we think you know from lines like unboxing the lexicon and the reference to the box of the TV that this language is exceeding that. That's the media artifact of of Endzone in mm-hmm. its center, and then we have the 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 kind of liner notes, the media kit, the lyric sheet to the mountain tapes, as well a, a, a doubled middle uh, of of Great Jones Street. But you were you were saying about those lyrics, which are quite silent. <laughs> they're silent. <laughs> they're they're non musical. That we put them to music mentally, if if at all. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting move to make within the narrative because I guess we could have taken on hearsay that Bucky was a, a great musician, you know, that he's mm-hmm. a, he's a inspirational lyricist and uh, generally someone that a lot of people love and admire. But here we get a sample. We get an actual sample in a similar way to in end zone. We get, we get a real game. We get a live game and a game that seems important within the, actual structure of the book, even though it seems like it stands a little bit out of time of the actual narrative. It's isolated. Yeah, it's almost in a different voice, too, that that voice that is pointing self-consciously to the exemplary spectator and commenting on its own almost inappropriateness as a as as literary material or something like that. Exactly. Right? Um, and, and commenting on almost insufficiency of meaning uh, always. Uh, um, I don't know. We, we could uh, talk for another hour about that soon, but maybe stay on Great Jones Street. Yeah, It's an interesting breather in the narrative as well. And I feel like mm-hmm. for Great Jones Street, we get kind of two of those breathers Yeah, of the actual product, the package. We get a sampling of one of the packages through reading the mountain tapes. Correct. Yeah. We we get a very you know it's a very diluted, very partial sampling of one of four tapes. Exactly. Right? Tape number four, which and we get five songs that are numbers sixteen through twenty. I think it is. We've, we're kind of not allowed to forget that we are dealing with a potential product here that you know is going to be commodified as it's released, and so we get. You know, the hint that uh, I think the mention of edited by Transparanoia comes up as the, yeah, it's on uh, 201, edited transcript of lyrics. And then, yeah, as you pointed out, Pulse Redactor Company, <laughs> right. re- redacting is its own uh, editing right. name. It, it, I mean, interesting to think that, you know, Pulse is a uh, corporeal uh, term, right? That the, the lifeblood of someone might be edited <laughs> by this uh, this company. That's very interesting. It's also, of course, a acoustic term mm-hmm. as well, a pulse right. you know, yeah. frequency, or even just a, a knocking on the, the dormitory wall, as Bloomberg does in, <laughs> in yeah, Enzo. Uh, right, yeah, that, but, that 
single unit of meaning, right? You're mentioning of, uh, of the potential editing or redaction just gives me the thought that like a Coke dealer stomps on the product, i.e. cuts it with something else, hmm. changes it somehow, devalues it somehow. Maybe we have a similar cutting or a similar stomping on. We have a, we have a package here. And I feel like in this book, there are two packages, right? Which are, it's, it's almost hilarious how confusing it can be. And it's very much how, a noir film plot where there's confusion over what the MacGuffin exactly <laughs> is. Just where intentional is various times. Yeah. This is absolutely yeah. intentional, but I feel like we are intended to equate the package containing quote unquote, mm-hmm. the ultimate drug, ultimate meaning, you know, the last, <laughs> the last drug in addition to the greatest drug with this musical product, yeah. this musical commodity. Yeah. Both uh, many factions want both of them. <laughs> it seems. Yeah. And happy Valley ends up destroying an entire record facility, right? Or the, the uh, tape facility, exactly blowing it up um, or the- sending people to blow it up rather than, allow Bucky to have any meaning, any language uh, out in the world. So they're both, yeah, the, both the packages end up being about silence, about redaction. destruction of language, redaction, total redaction. A violent, right? a violent redaction. Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of uh, government report with all the, <laughs> all the, uh, the lines blacked out or something like that, all the important information. There's a YouTube video of, of DeLillo reading from such a report as part of some event that, uh, where he says redacted constantly um, <laughs> in, the, in the CIA report or something, or, or it might be on so-called enhanced interrogation or torture. Anyway, that's just a tangential thing. Um, but such a, such a delilo moment, right? Yeah. In which yeah. orally to convey that information, you have to signal the redaction. You have yeah. to, you have to point towards the absence. Redacted, redacted, redacted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, what should we say, like, I have thoughts and I know you have thoughts on like why we focus on lyrics, why we get the poetry of Bucky at all. Should we talk about that or, or read one of the, one of the songs or, <laughs> um, let's, let's read one of the songs and yeah. then talk about that. Yeah, sure. Let's get into it. Uh, uh you want to read nothing turns the, from the first Media kit. Uh, that's page one hundred. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah, I am going to uh, read this rather than sing it. Yeah, I, I do have my. I think that's good. <laughs> I think that's for the best because we don't have melody. Although we should point out at some later point that there are is a, at least one musician who has said some of these uh, some of the mountain tapes lyrics to music uh, in a very interesting way. And well, yeah, it's an amazing challenge to to do. I know that with uh, with Pynchon's work. A lot of mm, people have yeah. put right. his songs to music yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. to varying degrees of success. But I feel like whatever the success is, it's a it's an interesting exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, here goes. Nothing turns. Our senses cannot hold them. Nothing turns from death so much as flesh. Oh, nothing turns. Nothing turns from death so much as flesh, untouched by aging. To be younger than the children you kill. Sits the ten-star general. There he sits, ex-vaudevillian, honing his patter in a cancer ward. Hmm. 
sits the cheese feet duchess. There she sits, woundless lady, cutting paper dolls with burning babes. Nothing turns from death so much as flesh, untouched by aging. Nothing turns. To be younger than the ones you kill and remain a velvet child, too late their cells run wild. General and his lady. You have lost the war. Oh, what a bore. You have lost the war. You have lost the war. So many, I mean, not only is this maybe a kind of pretty good song, but it's also without being, um, you know, while being subtle about it, a kind of parody of a lot of song lyrics and poetry in the world. Yeah. I mean, you will have more to say, I'm sure about Bob Dylan, but I can't, <laughs> can't read here or here sits the cheese feet, duchess, right. woundless lady, cutting paper dolls of burning babes without thinking of, of Dylan. And indeed, you know, w- w- one of the things we've been contending with in our kind of interpretation or joint interpretation of this novel is the fact that Grail Marcus, the great Dylan scholar, right, has kind of claimed um, this book as a uh, you know transparent recreation right. of of Bob Dylan, and he's even appeared on stage in a kind of um, I think they they are both were in um, maybe twenty fifteen responding to the Scorsese. Uh, film, No Direction Home, you know, the kind of Dylan biopic mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And DeLillo appeared and, and uh, you know, Marcus mainly talked, read from Great Jones Street at various points saying, oh, look how much this is pure Dylan. And and, and DeLillo, you know, we, it, it's not for us to say whether uh, DeLillo goes along with that, but certainly Dylan is here and there's more to say and the mountain tapes are in a way, the basement tapes from, I think, 67 to 75. But there's so much, as we've been conversing about this, right, and you've been prodding me to see that there's a lot more. There's, I think, the birds are here, and their song about, you know, to everything, a time and a season, turn, 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 you know, nothing turns from the very beginning is a kind of, you know, a, a little shot at this kind of countercultural anthem or peace and love use of a very maybe soft kind of rock and roll mm-hmm. that Bucky is. He's about noise, you know, the noisy end of rock. And, and you know, almost, you know, not only is it about current music, but it presages, I think, punk rock totally. in so many ways. It presages noise rock, uh, sonic youth, on its totally. and so on. Totally. But anyway, uh, this is just the beginning of kind of like, the poetry, <laughs> well, the poetry and song that that's brought up here and, and parodied, but also invoked. Um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> when, when I when I think about just the the versatility of of Delillo as a writer, I, I I have this checklist of of different modes of writing. There's fiction, obviously. There's nonfiction. There's drama. I never include lyric. Lyrical poetry, it's kind of, but it's here. Yeah, it's it here. is it's here. A lot of other places too. It in, is in the in the corpus. It um, is haiku in in Point Omega. Cosmopolis has um, some. Well, it has rap lyrics, but it also has a, a billionaire poetess. And <laughs> right. uh, what is her name? Elise Schifrin is uh, Eric Packer's wife, but but Eric Packer's a reader of poetry. Yeah, I think poetry is quite. 
important as a, a very versatile, to use that word as well, you know, very versatile object. Uh, Absolutely. Of quite a lot of seriousness, but also uh, parody. And, and both, you know, all those things are, are in the various Bucky lyrics. He certainly develops toward in the direction of the guttural and, and maybe the completely silent and maybe starts out with some, with VC sweetheart. Right. Sounding like Jim Morrison. Right. You know, and the doors uh, that, that seems like, you know, this kind of clearly politics oriented counterculture of eroticism and sex to uh, comment on, you know, the, the enemy of the time, the Viet, Viet Cong and this VC sweetheart as lover and, and love object. But there's so much more that Dilla wants to develop Bucky toward across these, across these song lyrics. So in some ways we have a before and after shot, even though the mountain mm-hmm. tapes were recorded before mm-hmm. the action starts, mm-hmm. we have a progression delineated up until the present moment of the narrative. And uh, we also have just a little sneak peek of, well, I guess we don't even really have a sneak peek of it. Uh, I think that one question would be, is the music, would this be commercially viable? Stop. Well, Blobkey thinks so. Blobkey right? thinks, yes. But there is that, um, Bucky has to be brought around to the notion that he can make these make this concert material. Yes, exactly. Material. Exactly. Uh, Blobkey's adding tracks. He's he's, man, mm-hmm. he's manicuring uh, mm-hmm. through, I think it's a telephone conversation. He talks about how he's basically cleaning it up. Where, whereas Bucky has an anxiety, he has doubt about the ability to even perform these songs to him. They're almost like a once off, uh, once off occurrence. Yeah. Yeah. Stop me in the middle of this disposition on music because you are the musician of us as a, uh, in, in the room here. But it, it strikes me that, you know, DeLillo is very interested in jazz as a kind of idiom, as something that embodies some, an improvisatory uh, quality that he values, especially in these kind of speeches throughout the, the monologues, the radio DJ monologues and, mm-hmm. and so on. And it strikes me that there, you know, with what you're identifying between the, the, the kind of raw unperformability, unreproducibility of the, of the mountain tapes, the, you know, despite being on tape that, that they are one time kind of things uh, that there's, there's a jazz idiom um, there of, I don't doubt that, you know, maybe Dylan thought about the basement tapes that they were a one-off or something like mm-hmm. that, that wouldn't uh, be, you know, immediately turned into uh commodified records. But, but yeah, Delilah wants that, that quality of jazz in particular among musical forms that uh, you're, when you're hearing it on record, you're not hearing the real live thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, that's interesting. What is, what is beneath all that, if not this uh, disillusion with reproduction, I suppose. Yeah. Human xerography. Is, <laughs> exactly. um, uh, is that the end zone phrase? I feel like it, it comes up. It's, it's apt for every book. Absolutely. Almost, right? and, yeah. and Bucky himself yeah. in conversation frequently parodies his own duplication. Mm-hmm. He, in, in one conversation, he says, send it to an address. Right. He also, yeah, we, we could probably bring up a few quotes, but 
he himself is, is painfully aware of his own duplicated, reduplicated well, image. He is, by virtue of being this celebrity messianic figure, he is seen in various places as though he has doubles uh, throughout uh, and triples you know, uh, throughout the land or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, we're, we're really talking about this kind of key dual subject of the unreproducibility of the self for Absolutely. the idealized, you know, non-copy or non-copyable state of, of, of the self that, um, you know, a lot of DeLillo's protagonist characters want to recover, but there's nothing of this kind of like the plot doesn't, uh, it's too, in, it's too interested in media and mediation to allow that kind of personhood to be, easy in a sense even know. though the whole concept of the man in the room the, mm. the exile the outlawing the stripping down the inner state <laughs> which is yeah right we'll, we'll inner, save that inner is the key adjective yes. right yeah, um yeah. that's a, that's a constant obsession here the anechoic room comes to mind as one kind of safe space almost like a safe haven Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a recording studio, but it's it's a very uh, yeah. That's what the mountain studio precisely is, right? But it's it's essentially a sensory deprivation chamber. Yeah. Uh, there's a very beautiful description of um, him and Opal in there at a time. Making but, love exactly, right? but there's also space. It, there's there's this one quote about how music in that space is is some it's like a liquor to be drank in by the ear. I think mm-hmm. the quote is, and yeah, and it's John Cage is being. If a, you know, I did, we, we talked about Cage, but there's the line that I think DeLillo probably knows of in addition to four minutes, 33 seconds of, you know, the site, the great silent composition mm-hmm. is, uh, Cage visited an anechoic room in a lab at Harvard sometime in the sixties, fifties. And he, was you know he it was described to him and then he went in and he said the thing that he wrote you know an essay about it or wrote about it multiple times that uh he could he said it wasn't completely silent because he could feel his own he could hear his own blood pulsing and uh, maybe heartbeat but there's another pulse that is the gives the lie to the possibility of complete silence absolutely um, yeah i mean silence is a celebrated meditative state in DeLillo, I think as a, as a possibility, but it's also inhuman (laughs) and ideal. It's a completely ideal. It's more of a concept than a reality. Yeah. But even on the level of like, you brought up Bloomberg tapping on the, the wall there, there's something inhuman to it in that, uh, humans are meant to tap. Uh, They instinctively not only tap and, you know, that's a, name of a character to come right mm-hmm. um but they they make meaning out of what they hear you know we can't bear silence in that even just a single pulse it's going to seem we meaningful be. especially if there's any sort of pattern at all to these uh, pulses and so on that's a great insight an endearing uh element of these early delillo narrators is we see that process of meaning making happening real time we're invited in on those those cognitions those recognitions those uh those moments also we're invited into the the demakings of those as well 
right? We see both, both sides of that. Yeah. And Bucky, I mean, and that's a media critique too. It's a fame and celebrity critique by nature because DeLillo finds a character here who drops out of this, you know, extreme money-making tour in order to, well, I think we'll, we'll probably read the opening uh, at some point, but to seek a, seek a new language Mm -hmm. uh, to take that on as a, as a, as a mission here. That's the other, you know, Rilke is, is a key poet again, because the mountain of the mountain tapes is the mountain that the, is it the wanderer, the voyager, the traveler goes Mm -hmm. to, um, goes up, uh, in the ninth Duino elegy that Billy Mast uh, memorized in German and didn't understand. <laughs> the untellable is still with us. The untellable is still with us, but there's the possibility of finding a name for objects that would be the same as, you know, holding the dirt in your hand. If I'm not, uh, exactly. Uh, misparaphrasing, heretically paraphrasing. No, I like that a lot. I feel like of the poem. I feel like there's a reason why it's the mountain tapes instead of the, the basement tapes yeah, or yeah, the yeah. attic tapes yeah. or, or something yeah. corollary to that. What do you, you know, I think we asked this question of why Globke asks it early on. He says, you have this mountain studio and yet you're coming here to this, uh, you know, kind of grimy little apartment, one room, you know, so maybe that's my question for you. Why does Bucky go to the room in Great Jones Street as opposed to his, uh, you know, very nice and echoic studio. Maybe you're better posed to answer that question. <laughs> You've been there, haven't you? I have been. You have I, been? I made my pilgrimage You've to made Great the Jones pilgrimage. Street. Um, just like it was, I think it was 2019, you know, right. we, 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 I think like a lot of people, we, you know, I uh, situate, my travel on either side of the COVID <laughs> right. interregnum this is PC. Uh, there. Yeah. Fall, fall or summer of 2019 and uh, saw the firehouse. There is a firehouse, the historic firehouse with, that, uh, with firemen who just breathe out the word. Water. Well, when I was water. there, it's a beautiful, you know, fire truck that, uh, okay. So it's actually, of. yeah, it actually works. It actually, they actually work. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, they, they do not put out fires with language. As far as I know. There's the place and then there's the name. There's a lot that we can do with the Well name. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like what makes a street great, I think, is is part of <laughs> part of the the question that is posed by this this title because as far as I know, you know, the, the, it, it's not like Great Hamilton Street or Great you know, the, the it's not Great Franklin. There there there's no I think if you look on Wikipedia, there's a suggestion that, well, you can find out who the Jones was, but um, people only seem to care. I mean, there, there's a kind of maybe urban legend. I don't, I don't know. This, you know, it's something that probably you would need a very strong sociolinguistic research project to really track down. But that Jonesing are are. are you know, word for um, drug addicts, cravings, yes. and so on is comes from Great Jones Street because of the the Bowery neighborhood and its association with uh, drug addicts. Uh, Basquiat had a uh, had a studio on um, Great Jones Street. Um, I'm not sure about when that would have uh, been here. But the other thing, you know, I know from setting up my 
trip or pilgrimage there and looking on the map, of course, which is one thing, you know, you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that great. It's not that exactly. long street. So it's ironic. Yeah. In that sense. It's two blocks long. It's a shitty little street, basically. <laughs> it's a very tiny street. It has the firehouse. And nowadays, nothing, you know, especially remarkable. I think there's like a car lot, maybe a kind of, uh, you know, new cars that uh, down at, at one end. But importantly, you know, it's East 3rd third, third Street. Um, on one side of, um, the Bowery, um, you know, where it crosses Bowery. And then when it crosses Bowery, it becomes Great Jones Street for essentially two blocks, maybe, uh, one block more. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes West Third on the other side and it's, you know, sort of, um, on the other side of Broadway. Um, uh, and, uh, those are numbers. <laughs> those are indications that the grid of, you know, has surrounds it. Uh, yeah, that, that it, it's a sort of break in the grid. Maybe you might say that it's a point where a, a number gives way to a, a great name. And, and I think Delillo would find meaning in that. Absolutely. It seems like a nice little place to hide out. If you did need <laughs> to hide out, uh, from somewhere or someone. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, it, it it's a real place. It is really a- importantly because we've been through two books that are built around unreal places, right? Fort Curtis and Rooster, Texas, and these <laughs> these uh, College, yeah, made up pieces of Americana. Um, the, you know, as we you know, have a lot to say about the artificial state. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose that we have kind of a tangling of fact and fiction here. In, in having that real street, but also the novel fact and fiction get tangled in the first place. We have the rumors of Bucky. Bucky's everywhere, right? He is on Great Jones Street physically, but his image, the the vacuum that he's created in the news necessitates his his appearances. Silence doesn't exist when it comes to to Bucky's name and Bucky's image. So I love the idea that he's in this it's, it sounds like a pretty awful building. Uh, apparently there's a corpse or two on the <laughs> ground floor. I don't know if they're talking about Micklewhite's cave. Right, a, a or very what? brief mention. Yeah, there's a corpo. A, 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 a corpo. A, a right? corpo. Yeah, a bit of lingo that I uh, <laughs> that you have to interpret. Right. right? I'm like, Ooh, I was talking about dead bodies. So yeah. it seems like a very... There's no hot water. or It's, it's a very... Modest type of building, and yeah, yet, and yet we have this kind of uh, this kind of machine, this this mechanism of fame, fame and rumor that catapult him all over the place to the point where midway through, Bucky doesn't even try to deny the rumors. He's, I think, it's to that journalist. Yeah, all, he says, all of them are yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're all true. Whatever you write will be will be true. So yeah. I feel like it's interesting to have this real street, this this real mm-hmm. place. And yet it's, it's kind of inconsequential in some ways. We have, we have the reality of it and we have all of the stories surrounding that, orbiting that reality. Yeah. It's a death, deathly place and it, it run down at maybe architecturally or something like that. It may be evocative of New York in the seventies is famously underserved, you know, uh, the, the, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the famous headline, I think it's from 75 Ford to city drop dead, uh, <laughs> over funding for 
uh, New York, and then Underworld has quite a bit about the blackout, the lack of, of trash pickup. I think that's a, a 70s scene. So there's a kind of squalor. Real, yeah, and, and Delos in a kind of realist mode that he has a, he, he thinks it's not only a, a, a gritty, grimy New York City, but it's medieval uh, in nature. Right. Which 16th is, century. It's something to be to be talked about. We're kind of uncovering the fact that, you know, what is uh, what is great about Great Joe Street is that it is so generative of meanings. Oh, that, that the apartment is a, a death place. It's a kind of tomb. You know, Opal comes there to die and to die in a sort of at once undramatic and yet totally mysterious in an inexplicable way. I mean, we assume it's a drug overdose. It's a Bill Gray kind of a death, right? It's just kind of done. Yeah, it's abrupt. And, and, you know, before that, we have Bucky wearing Opal's coat, which on a, you know, second or third reading, you realize, like, he's putting on, you know, the, the coat of a character who will die. And Opal is the real resident of that apartment. But what you were saying, you know, that Bucky is... In a sense, like his fame life makes him live in all these other zones. It's a bit like Opal living in timeless lands. And yet, what does that then make Great Jones Street when she comes back to it, Bucky comes back to it? I think it, it means that these places, this place is a confrontation with time. Is that too? No. Uh, no, I love aggressive that. Or <laughs> no, I love that. A way to put it. But know. it's, yeah, I think it's fascinating that. Well, first of all, it's fascinating that one of the fundamental projects of this book is to dramatize a guy in a room. Right. And just the challenge of that boredom, the challenge of that, uh, of, of making that interesting. How, how mm-hmm. does, how does a writer make a hideout, uh, a recluse in exile interesting? Well, you have, first of all, a bunch of people come to, bother him inter- yeah. interrogate him and who seem seemingly are random and yet then turn out to be meaningful in this kind of absolutely way yeah. but you also have multiple psychologically rich descriptions on motion and stasis mm-hmm. on on the passing of time on how does one behave in this type of environment in some ways it's extremely it's like ground zero real but on the other hand, it's surreal. It's completely surreal. All of a sudden, you have the last party just tramping through the whole thing. You've got Globkey and Globkey's assistants just kind of rifling through trunks. You have the, the most mundane of tasks, which is let's make a cup of coffee, <laughs> which turns into... Or beef goulash or a bag. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or which is another great food scene. Absolutely. Food which doesn't get more, I guess, uh, maybe relatable isn't the right word for it, but uh, understandable. Yeah. And yet you have, you have a real sheen of, of unreality in, in it all. So I love that you can look up Great Jones Street on Google Maps, and yet this Great Jones Street yeah. isn't there. It's a place of expanded consciousness as, as it expands in our consciousness. So what starts chapter two here is just a sentence that 
you know, in addition to his poetry kind of being intertextual and citing sources, you know, we start chapter two after the kind of amazing thematic introduction that chapter one provides with the, the concert scenes with, I went to the room in Great Jones Street, mm. a small crooked room, cold as a penny, looking out on warehouses, trucks and rubble. Now, I went to is the most mundane, in a sense, uh, formulations, and yet it certainly echoes, I went to the woods to live deliberately of Henry David Thoreau. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of all these, you know, Thoreau, I'm not a 19th century Americanist, uh, uh, and I haven't read Walden very recently, but I know one of the kind of important elements to consider in this kind of great myth of American reclusiveness and privacy is that Thoreau is not very far from civilization and from the city and the town at all. You know, he's right near Concord and uh, can go visit people in the evenings and the train tracks run very nearby. (laughs) And I think there's lines about, you know, the pastoral being whirled away by uh, the sound of the train uh, coming by. And it, it, I think DeLillo seems to want to be in a kind of dialogue with that uh, mythology, that very um, American um, exploration and, and myth. And I think the, the kind of possibility of transcending and being a transcendentalist in that environment and in Bucky's environment is at least, you know, something that's uh, questioned and explored, but yeah, if there's a, there's a, you know, in kind of simple narrative term, this isn't Walden and it wouldn't be narratively sustainable if he didn't have this kind of constant flow of, uh, of visitors. visitors. Yeah. Absolutely. But it does have that kind of unity of place to a lot of it. Totally. You know, before the end of this podcast, we'll want to talk about going out and why and how one has to go out into New York city and, um, you know, widen the, the scope to answer your question. You know, why does he go to great Jones street in another way or to ask another question based on that question? It seems like everyone knows where he is, who wants to find mm-hmm. him. Right. Yeah. There's no real, I guess perhaps he wouldn't have a way to find this out, but it seems like anyone who would want to contact Bucky can contact Bucky. It's no secret. So in some ways, uh, is it an insincere exile? Is it an insincere dropping out? He is kind of off the grid. He is unaware that the telephone can be turned on and yet it does get turned on. It does get used by Glaubke. And I I think it's just Glaubke who calls him. Uh, Watney as well calls him on the phone. Yeah, no, he has a few conversations. He doesn't do a great job of sealing disappearing. Right. Yeah. So what are we to make of that? A couple of things. I mean, one suicide gets mentioned on the on the first page. Yep. Right. And this is something that hovers over Bucky. And I think we are both glad that he does not give in to the temptation of is Bohack. Bohack. You know, this would make a great place to leap off the, <laughs> uh, the roof of this building. Right. And, um, you know, and Bucky says, uh, he'd rather be a murderer than a suicide at this point. Uh, right. that he has murder on the mind, which 
is an interesting kind of DeLillo formulation that these are the alternatives, you know, uh, <laughs> dying and killing. Uh, Take your pick. It's uh, be a dyer or a killer, as, as Murray uh, Siskin will, will put it. But, um, and so I think, you know, I think there's a kind of <laughs> desire. We've talked together about how this is a more hopeful book, uh, you know, after after Gary Harkness's ending in Endzone, which doesn't seem to be a suicide, but is a, is a, he's put on a kind of suicide watch. He's on hunger strike of some sort um, there where they, you know, he needs IV fluids and stuff. It's, it's a rather extreme uh, state as, as his ending. True. And I, and I just, um, you know, it, it, it seems that DeLillo is not only juxtaposing the music package and the drugs package and suggesting something about, you know, you might alter your mind through music and in addition to drugs, but that the language drug is a kind of state of death and life, you know, to think that to be without language is indeed a kind of death. death. And I think of zero K, right. This kind of state question of like, but what if your brain is producing language in the cryogenic chamber is the great nightmare of that, you know, for decades without your being able to have embodied experience. But this is, uh, I mean, I mean, that's just one hint that I, I think this book is where DeLillo hits a kind of, maybe hits a kind of stride that, that, that there's so much of later, DeLillo in this absolutely book. Dilar uh, in terms uh, of the drug. Yes. Uh, Dilar. I mean, there's a lot of Mao too here, all the, the kind of books that are in love with New York, uh, totally. Cosmopolis, um, you know, the entire idea that a, a cosmic city is there. Uh, zero or, um, well, zero K is very much, it has the Manhattan hedge, you know, it's, it's his. It's the beginning of a lot in, in Delillo, but I sort of only half answered the the question no, that, you posed. I think that was a great yeah. a great yeah. answer. I want to just insert this little bit that if if the character of Menifee, mm. who is Doctor Pepper's assistant, mm. in my books, if he has any real thing to add to this book. It's his assertion that New York is too real for him. <laughs> and that in the last scene that we have, there's some homeless person, I think, that uh, costs him. And he just screams out, New York, New York. New-. For him, everything is New York. Yeah. And he's just scared of everything. And I feel like. Which it also kind of echoes, isn't when when Bucky says the address that should be written to, he says New York, New York. Right. Yes, New York. He, I think he says more than it's two, four times. Four times. times. Yes. yes. So that's his kind of like. Well, it's it's. I mean, I think there's a suggestion at the end that Bucky could live as a derelict man in the streets. You know that the um, uh, that that's a kind of like um, a spiritual path him into a kind of real asceticism um, that, uh, that that echo brings up. Yeah. That's a good point. The New yeah. York myth is definitely uh, started in earnest. Here. Yeah. Although in Americana it was also present. Yeah, but importantly, right, that's a kind of, I mean, we don't stay there. We, we go out west and, and go into this kind of um, 
placeless place of sure. Fort Curtis that doesn't even have a, a sort of state. Before you were talking about why you can't seal yourself off uh, here, and I and I think it's you know to Delilah will kind of rewrite this sort of plot with actual bunkers mm-hmm. <laughs> at times, you know, and that I think there's a kind of fantasy of that is meant to be undermined the fantasy of a sort of um, cabin in the woods or a hermetic seal uh, to one's life that maybe gives the lie to the anechoic chamber as well, that, that there is um, uh, a kind of inherent sociality to the, human animal that that is undeniable undeniable and that for a different writer would be solved through you know intimacy and love of opal or something like that but for delillo has to has to kind of be submitted to this process of really losing one's language losing one's entire selfhood getting at all the criticism of the culture that's possible from that it's quite a stripping down that, yeah, uh, the Bucky goes through for sure. You know, I've been meaning as we've been talking about Great Joe Street. I wanted to read that half a paragraph on eighteen, where it, which is one description of an early description of the street that where it's said to have a kind of self. Oh yes, that, that you know, Great Joe Street is almost the the name of a character, as I think. Go ahead. You know, you said. Let me uh, read uh, the top of that paragraph slowly along Great Jones. Signs of commerce becoming apparent of shipping and receiving, export packaging, custom tanning. This was an old street. Its materials were, in fact, its essence. And this explains the ugliness of every inch. But it wasn't a final squalor. Some streets in their decline possess a kind of redemptive tenor, the suggestion of new forms about to evolve. And Great Jones was one of these, hovering on the edge of self-revelation. Paper, yarn, leathers, tools, buckles, wireframe and novelty. And then it goes on from there. That phrasing of hovering on the edge of self-revelation mm-hmm. makes me think that to be a street and perhaps uh, is, a, is a kind of um, a good state, a good ugly state in, in Delillo's world. At the, the last party, we have some throwaway lines um, about, the, on 72, there are lines about some women who are referred to as being Miss Mott, and mm-hmm. Miss Rivington, and Miss Canal, um, because they they seem to, you know, they're highly associated with the streets they live on. And that seems to be a little hint that, indeed, this kind of idea that the street becomes you, you become the street, is important. You are your environment. Um, there's, a, yeah, there's a bleed yeah. through. Yeah, there, and that that's um, partly the the statement of a native son of New York, you know, Definitely. and Lolo will be kind of constantly coming around to coming back to this notion of being from Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, and only with Underworld do we get the kind of full demonstration. autobiographical story, but yeah, demonstration of that that origin. But what do you think about? Objecthood, I yeah. guess, too, it, it, and being not a street, but maybe paper, yarn, leathers, tools. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Old trucks came rumbling off the cobblestones in Lafayette Street. Each truck in turn mounted the curb, where several would remain throughout the day, listening slightly 
circled by heavy-bellied men carrying clipboards, invoices, bills of lading, forever hoisting their trousers over their hips. These are prosaic descriptions, and yet there are also wonderful evocations that are poetically touched and and interesting. There's a there's a there's a tension between the prosaic and the poetic here, mm-hmm. and I feel mm-hmm. like Bucky really rides that far down the line and it's little little scenes like this where the materials are in fact the essence which it's it's a peculiar formulation almost for its like transparency yeah but we end up here at the end of the book don't we? We have a yeah. We this have is a kind of pre- uh, premonition of, it is, of the ending. Yeah, it is where the the funny thing about the materials, where in fact its essence sentence is that this isn't some like beautiful. <laughs> this isn't um, redemptive in a conventional sense. It's not like the, the the statue is in fact its essence, and therefore it's a it's a magnetic beautiful thing. No, ugliness is ugliness, and Mm-hmm. There's almost a stripping of poetry here. There's not, like an unapologetic type of uh, perspective, which for Bucky, Great Jones Street symbolizes. It is It is what it is. I associate essence with philosophy. Like a soul. Right. And I kind of, I mean, I, I think implicit in saying that it's materials where it's essence, it, it's a kind of existential or phenomenological formulation to say the, the materiality is the is the essence because it it does deny the metaphysical uh in some way in favor of the of the physical and that seems in line with everything delillo does that there he is the i think in a way the great american existential novelist in in so many ways I agree. I, the um the sentence beyond where you stopped, you know, you sort of continued the paragraph where I left off and then you mm-hmm. stopped before a black woman emerged from the smear of an abandoned car, talking a scattered song. Wind was biting up from the harbor and that, that the harbor is, um, you know, a key kind of element of that ending that we will eventually talk about where Bucky's coming off the drug. Absolutely. But it strikes me that, you know, you were saying that the prosaic and the poetic are in a kind of dynamic relationship here. And this woman is one of the uh, kind of, she's not saying New York, New York, New York, New York, but she's another of the kind of street babblers. There's a kind of hint, a suggestion, as there is with many DeLillo street characters of you know mental health issues emanating with what is always a kind of speaking in tongues in, in a sense. Uh, Absolutely. You know, uh, we're not yet to the names and the kind of specific invocation of that as, as um, biblical kind of formation. But Bucky is, um, you know, we are being prepared. We're being prepared for the ending, but we're also being prepared for the mountain tapes. And maybe we should, should we read some mountain tape Let's lyrics? Do uh, That's a good, because the scattered song of the, of the woman here is, um, is kind of, yeah, what the mountain tapes aspire to in a way. Kind of. A private language as well, like mm-hmm. a, a language that's almost designed for one's self. There's a, as we flip to the mountain tapes, there's a passage where Bucky's talking about accessing that emotion of creating these things 
that it's that it is a private. It was a. We should find the actual. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, uh, I think two hundred four is. I was born with all languages in my mouth, but I'm 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 thinking too that we'll want to fold PP Mama as the big hit song. <laughs> I guess that you know, of you know his biggest hit into. We'll want to fold that into the discussion of the of the mountain tapes because that. Um, is is his kind of um, gateway to what we what we hear in the, in the mountain tips? Do you want do you want to uh, do another read sing? Okay, of of eighteen. Uh, yeah. Okay. And, and I was born with all languages in my mouth. All right. I was born with all languages in my mouth. Baba, baba, baba. This and that, mine and woe, sand words on mud. High Taljonics. Everything ever spoken shines from my teeth. Baba, Baba, Baba. Halda, Ni, Waji. Hilda, Crywiki. Mildred Hayes. Bionongenics. Mambo Magic. Oh, 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 oh. Mambo Madness. Oh, 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 oh. Dancing on a Latin balcony, swaying to a starry symphony. Mambo mania. Oh, 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 oh. Undreamed grammars float in my spittle. Baba, baba, baba. Gadong, gadong, gadong. Uma, childa, nobo. Distiptics in wine. Insane today. I was born with all languages in my mouth. Baba, baba, baba. Nothing maker but to blurt. But to sing, baby, God, and goo. <laughs> it's like a spell. Incantation. <laughs> yes, it's like right. an incantation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what he, the language he uses for Pipi Mama. And yet, more, well, grotesque, uh, it, you know, it, um, these are kind of like, in a way, I, I don't know, I, I don't I feel like my uh, kind of, language of poetics needs a kind of sharpening because I want to say these are onomatopoetic uh, phrases mm -hmm. uh, in part, you know, as a kind of wellspring of, of poetry, but they, they kind of at times contain the, the spittle <laughs> that is their, um, you know, the, the means of their production or, or, or something like that. No, I agree. I agree. There's, it's, it's disorienting because there is uh, what might seem as nonsense melding into actual semantic language yeah. and yeah. also names being uh, blended in there as well mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of exclamation, the Oh, 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 Baba, 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 Mambo mania. <laughs> right. And the kind of invocation, you know, one of the earliest songs, right. Has the sort of jazz and flute and rock. I feel like there's a progression. These are, I don't know anything about the mambo, but it, that kind of invocation of musical forms that are other uh, from Bucky that he's maybe assimilating at times and so on. I've got two things to say to that. One of them is these seem like nonce forms in the sense that they are kind of one-offs. They aren't really patterned off of anything and they're not meant to solidify into genres to be repeated. Hmm. For example, 19 is 
nighttime come, mountain dark, treetop wind, mad dog bark. There are similarities you could draw, but that is also an, another nonce form. It's a one-off. Yeah. It is in the moment. It is what it is. That's it. But also kind of haiku like in that case too. I mean, but I, I agree with you that these are um, non-forms. It might be uh, how I put it, but I think Delilah wants us to think of the, the kind of content of, of haiku in that case, you know, the, the sort of limited syllabic form about natural processes or water, a, a kind of meditative poetic form, right? On that note, this ain't Bob Dylan. <laughs> right? Well, this is even deeper than that. It, it's Dadaism, isn't it? I think there is a suggestion that Ma Ma, <laughs> that Dada... Yeah, uh, was a kind of evocation of a, of a child's language for the, the father. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's that kind of like earlier, um, sound poetry, uh, Hugo Ball, uh, automatic writing. Yeah. Um, feels like this is part of it. You know, I, I know this tradition kind of, um, David Byrne and the talking heads. Has, right. Uh, Stop making sense. Of, uh, well, there's that, but, uh, you know, Gaji Bimba and, you know, this Hugo Ball line mm-hmm. or, or poem that you can, you know, it, it takes many forms and can, um, you know, make its way into radio hits, rock music, totally. uh, and so on. But I think, again, DeLillo is uh, aware of, he, he seems like a, a prophet of any given move by rock music. You know, he sees the potential, right? In not just, he's not just out to mimic Dylan, and this isn't Dylan, he's out to sort of uh, say there could be a kind of writer in this uh, form that I was sort of laying down little sketches of. So in these tapes, we have perhaps a blueprint for an authentic artist, an authentic piece Mm -hmm. of art, contrasted to... Azarian's uh, <laughs> obsession with blackness yeah, and how yeah. heavy yeah. you don't even understand how heavy blackness mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. It's harder than any drug you've ever you've ever taken. Yeah, of course this is uh, this is completely ridiculous in many ways. It's it's true. I think that black black music, black culture yeah. is heavy. It is also important. It is also many things, but. Azarian is taking it to an absurd level that is um, quite clearly contrasted to to Bucky's pursuits, don't you think? Yes, definitely. (laughs) I think, you know, I mean, I think Azarian is what, you know, of the, we've mentioned Bob Dylan, we've mentioned Jim Morrison and the Doors, the the Rolling Stones and and Mick Jagger seem to be a kind of, um, yeah. A comparison case that DeLillo wants to evoke. And Azarian seems to be in that vein of every white, you know, appropriator of black music since Elvis at least has been called out for this um, in, in the rock and roll vein right. um, has been called out for this kind of appropriation that Azarian embraces, embraces and, and brings to a kind of parodic, Extreme. I mean, I, you know, I wonder about, we've talked some before about DeLillo making, being um, interested in, in say, in Taft Robinson, in black characters that end up being key uh, to the book. But as he says on the first page of um, Not Invisible Man, of Enzo, 
you know, he merely haunts this book, right. the metaphor coming up of, of the invisible man. Um, I wonder if in his area, and there's a little bit of like self consciousness about his own, um, you know, uh, use of, uh, appropriation of, of, of black, uh, characters. I don't, I think it's more this kind of address to the culture that, um, is especially in rock, but in all sorts of forms, kind of trying to inhabit blackness and, you know, white, white people and inhabiting these idioms and, and forms and experiences. It brings to mind uh, something that Haynes, the assistant to Globke of Transparanoia and kind of a, kind of a running dog of the, of the whole thing. He says, a title. he says at one point in the book, this is on 46. He, he says this in a different context. He says this personally. I'll read a little bit before yeah, what yeah. I want to get to, but on 45 bottom of that, Music is the final hypnotic. Music puts me just so out of everything. I get taken beyond every reference that indicates who I am or how I behave. Just so out of it. Music is dangerous in so many ways. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. And that I get taken beyond every reference that indicates who I am or how I behave. It's, it's beautiful. In some ways, that's saying that music is, is universal, that music is uh, something that all of us can tap into, irregardless of who, what we are. It, it divests yourself from your own, un, your own identity. On the other side of that, there's, he's laughing at Haynes, too, <laughs> I think, right? Yeah. There, there is that. But on the other, uh, I, in addition to that, um, music is dangerous in so many ways. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. Azarian is absolutely forgetting the reference of who he is or how he behaves. He's, mm-hmm. he's taking it into a direction that I think Azarian mentions that he's not even really accepted by the black music community. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's not really in there. He's just kind of this observer from from beyond it can be it can be dangerous in more ways than one i think you can read this uh this statement by haynes in in a few different ways yeah i mean i hear parody of haynes in it in part because i think it makes me imagine or it makes me grateful that bucky doesn't speak this way for the you know that the book could be a kind of celebration of music by a musician that Bucky doesn't indulge really. And there, and in a way there's a kind of advantage, I think for DeLillo in being to my understanding, a kind of non music person or something, you know, he doesn't come at this with a lot of technical language of the musician. And in the same way, you know, Haynes is a, a drug addict ultimately as well. And I hear some of that mm. in, in this I'm also glad that there aren't that there's not a lot. There is a talk talk of hashish and its effects, but it strikes me that Delillo doesn't want to dwell in a kind of drugged out language in, in a sense. If, if, if anything, that's the object of scrutiny here in 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 having um, you know a range of musicians having the drug addicted girlfriend who, um, you know, ends up overdosing as almost a, you know, a trope (laughs) of of the culture. 
but then it's the language drug that he's really interested in uh, creating or inventing uh, for us, the ultimate drug. So there's a kind of like respect for what rock music, I sound old and say rock music, uh, <laughs> is trying to do um, and, and trying to accomplish and what it reflects about the culture. And yet, um, you know, it can't be fully inhabited or endorsed, I guess, by the, the novel, you know, the novel isn't going to be simply a sort of celebration of, 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 of music. I'm, I'm kind of being maybe critical of something that is, I think, as you're suggesting, like meant to be a kind of visionary moment as well, that, that there is this potentiality in music. I agree with you though, that if, if Bucky was just kind of writing an extended love letter to music in general, that would be, it would become tiresome, I think Yeah, uh, if it was gone at, at any length, but it seems that where Haynes is talking about is his love for music, but also the danger of, of music. Bucky frequently talks about his own music in terms of violence and in terms of power. Mm. He talks about crushing people's heads. He talks about <laughs> 20,000 megawatts of, the of in, frozen uh, sound, in, uh, right? In, in Bucky, yeah. And that's an interesting commentary. That I, I think uh, in the media kit, he talks, there's an interview in there where he talks about that's, uh, you have to crush people's heads. That's the only way to make these fuckers listen. That's 104. Mm. It's an interesting approach to have. I think that Bucky's putting on a show to some degree here uh, and, and playing that up. But I also think that there is something to this image of the sheer power of, of this art, that this is, this is not something on the wall or something on a shelf. It's something that penetrates violently pulses through the body. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we don't need to go there, but Watney's, uh, Schickelgrube has a <laughs> has an interesting approach to music as well. I think it's described as anti-violence. Hmm. It just renders like a static, like just kind of like zombifies the audience. Maybe we don't need to go there. Well, but. you know, it, I mean, that evokes one of those the very the, the first two pages of the novel are about a kind of zombification. The pant the the silence that that might emanate from the stage. Should we go there? I, I think Let's we go should. There. But before that, but right before crushing people's heads, there's the great line: "Any curly-haired boy can write rinse-wet ballads." <laughs> um, I will say that you know to be on my Dylan kick for a moment again. Dylan, this is an taken to an extreme, but the tension here is between. Oh. When Sweat Ballads and Crushing People's Heads is Dylan going electric at Newport uh, at the Folk Festival in, in 1965. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I've got that in my notes here. And, and you know, what that offended uh, in the folkies was, and Pete Seeger, you know, famously tried to like take an axe to the power cord so that he couldn't uh, be heard. But it, it, it sort of, um, you know, was Dylan being his irascible self, but bringing in technology into music. And I think Bucky and, and Dylan or uh, Delillo, <laughs> sorry to make that mistake. But it's we do think Delillo should have won Dylan's Nobel yeah, Prize here on this yeah, podcast. We, we have agreed on that. And make it his own uh, yet. 
Um, but that Delillo wants to explore that, you know, uh, that kicking off of the kind of protest singer, uh, mantle, uh, as well as embracing in a limited form, the technology of, of rock and so on. But we should read the beginning because the, the, all this, I mean, talk about a kind of exploration of so much fascism, power, bodies, and so on yeah. through um, just these concert scenes. So take it um, away. Okay. All right. The famous first line about fame. Fame requires every kind of excess. I mean, true fame, a devouring neon, not the somber renown of waning statesmen or chinless kings. I mean, long journeys across gray space. I mean, danger, the edge of every void, the circumstance of one man imparting an erotic terror to the dreams of the Republic. Understand the man who must inhabit these extreme regions, monstrous and vulval, damp with memories of violation. Even if half mad, he is absorbed into the public's total madness. Even if fully rational, a bureaucrat in hell, a secret genius of survival, he is sure to be destroyed by the public's contempt for survivors. Fame, this special kind, feeds itself on outrage, on what the counselors of lesser men would consider bad publicity. Hysteria in limousines, knife fights in the audience, bizarre litigation, treachery, pandemonium and drugs. Perhaps the only natural law attaching to true fame is that the famous man is compelled eventually to commit suicide. Is it clear I was a hero of rock and roll? Toward the end of the final tour, it became apparent that our audience wanted more than music, more even than its own reduplicated noise. It's possible the culture had reached its limit, a point of severe tension. There was less sense of simple, visceral abandon at our concerts during these last weeks. Few cases of arson and vandalism, fewer still of rape, no smoke bombs or threats of worse explosives. Our followers, in their isolation, were not concerned with precedent now. They were free of old saints and martyrs, but fearfully so, left with their own unlabeled flesh. Those without tickets didn't storm the barricades, and during a performance, the boys and girls directly below us, scratching at the stage, were less murderous in their love of me, as if realizing finally that my death, to be authentic, must be self-willed, a successful piece of instruction, only if it occurred by my own hand, preferably in a foreign city. I began to think their education would not be complete until they outdid me as teacher, until one day they merely pantomimed the kind of massive response the group was used to getting. As we performed, they would jump, dance, collapse, clutch each other, wave their arms, all the while making absolutely no sound. We would stand in the incandescent pit of a huge stadium filled with wildly rippling bodies, all totally silent. Our recent music, deprived of people's screams, was next to meaningless, and there would have been no choice but to stop playing. A profound joke it would have been. A lesson in something or other. <laughs> in Houston, I left the group, saying nothing, and boarded a plane for New York City, that contaminated shrine, place of my birth. I knew Azarian would assume leadership of the band, his body being prettiest. As to the rest, I left them to their respective uproars, news media, promotion people, agents, accountants, 
various members of the managerial peerage, the public would come closer to understanding my disappearance than anyone else. It was not quite as total as the act they needed, and nobody could be sure whether I was gone for good. For my closest followers, all it foreshadowed was a period of waiting. Either I'd return with a new language for them to speak, or they'd seek a divine silence attendant to my own. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you've whistled, you've mm. Yeah. Now we need to really understand the meaning. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, what a way to, to open. We have... Yeah, I mean, this is among many great openings, one of the greatest, I think. It catches us up quite quickly mm-hmm. to the present uh, moment. What sticks out to me most here is this scene of of the pantomiming audience. Yeah. The audience that is acting like an audience, but actually wants something else. They are uh, facsimiles of an audience. Bucky mm-hmm. later on talks about facsimiles and, and duplications and simulacra. This is almost the, the simulacrum of an audience, an audience no acting there's there's this weird alienation of not only the audience from the audience but the audience from Bucky here and it's super creepy to, to say the least it's creepy yeah he also describes it as they would go beyond me I don't know I hear that is that what they said beyond their teacher uh, uh, they outdid me as yeah. a teacher as teacher isn't it uh it Dostoevsky and uh, uh Gale of the did Detective says, uh, you'll go beyond me, Raskolnikov, you know, you'll, um, that there's some kind of, um, yeah, just surpassing, uh, going on that, um, and what, what, what would they go beyond him or outdo him at? I think it's at being, uh, a joke in a way, because there's a, there's a certain recognition in, in, uh, in the pantomime in the, in the silence of the whole joke of rock music, you know, of, of, um, this culture of spectacle. Yeah. Um, but it would be perform great performance art for this to happen. And yet that's sort of part of Delillo world rather than part of this kind of mainstream, um, you know, uh, highly successful rock act or something. One like sentence to back that up is on two near the top, mm-hmm. they were free of old saints and martyrs, but fearfully so, left with their own unlabeled mm-hmm. flesh. To me, unlabeled flesh is just, it's, it's amazing because it, it talks so much about fandom, <laughs> how <laughs> fandom works. That it gives you an identity. It gives you a label. It gives mm-hmm. you something to mm-hmm. to work with. And it, I guess it's counter to, to Haynes' statement of uh, music divesting you of your identity, but we have, we have almost like an unhinged audience here. We have an audience that is disillusioned and dangerous. <laughs> Danger is that word that appears again here. Um, or for the first time, I, do you think this is, I get Lady Riefenstahl triumph of the will vibes from this spectacle that, you know, and then they are a few paragraphs later, they're tearing the Astrodome apart as well as they can, you know, and 
And this is, you know, just kind of, I think the Astrodome was built, you know, six or eight years before the novel was published. And so it's meant to be the kind of, you know, it's modernity is our post-modernity tearing uh, it down. that they're uh, tearing at. But I just think, are the, these are proto dog boys <laughs> in, in Bucky's audience, aren't they? they no, these are right. the, the raid on Fennig and Micklewhite's apartments um, and the, um, you know, Happy Valley Farm Commune becoming violent and fascistic seems foretold here, um, in a, in a way. I mean, it's also the stones that Altamont, um, had a killing right. in the audience. The Hells Angels. Stabbing. Yeah. I mean, it captures the, again, Delilah sees what is primitive <laughs> in rock, in rock and roll. Man, the um, primate. The, man, the primate. Yeah. <laughs> but is it, I think, you know, one of the things that Great Jones Street does first in Delos Corpus to me is is really get at this kind of fascist spirit that's through uh, the crowding, yeah, through the manipulation of yeah. the mass, mm-hmm. and in in this audience and this, in other audiences, we have this undifferentiated mass. It makes me think of. Um, I, I hope that this speaks to your point. The last party we have Bucky counting organs. <laughs> we have Bucky just God. imagining. Yeah, it's such a grotesque. It's grotesque, bag. but there's something about about the crowd, something about a, a, a mass of people, in which I mean, this also speaks to just the, the thingingness of pornography that Fanick talks about, which, according to him, is what leads us to fascism: turning people into things. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We have multiple times in the book where humans are not much more than meat <laughs> and also meat that, that buys records meat that Globke can sell things to meat that is profitable for whatever meat that the package is meant to be distributed to. Yeah. And, and that name, you know, it, it's such a, such a terrible name in, in, in a sense, uh, Globke, but it's meant to capture the fact that the market is, is, is gross, is grotesque, that it is, it has uh, what vulture pus or whatever uh, Fennig says is, uh, you know, going on as the, as the market wheel spins and, and, and so on. Yeah. There is um, looking again at that very first paragraph of, I was uh, looking at, the public's total madness. There, there's almost a kind of, even if half mad, he is absorbed into the public's total madness. Even if fully rational, a bureaucrat in hell, a secret genius of survival, he is sure to be destroyed by the public's contempt for survivors. It, to me, there's almost a kind of equation of almost leadership being worked out that, that there's a kind of, um, you know, demagoguery that, I mean, Hitler is the, is the subtext. Um, Mussolini so as well. often here. Yeah. Right. That there's an equation of, of the out of controlness that a totalitarian system creates and, and thrives on, but does not control um, in, in fundamental ways. And it turns right. out bad. It does turn <laughs> it out. Turns it out turns out pretty bad. bad. Yeah. There's blood. The plot of of fascism tends deathward. Is we we have <laughs> well put. Yeah. We have yeah. this uh, in the first the first little bit, and mm-hmm. it's it's almost amazing to have a 
novel in which the death is expected somehow for for reasons that are difficult to comprehend. To, to, to Bucky's death. Bucky's death. Yeah. yeah. Bohack requires him to die mm-hmm. uh, to preserve the image that him and the commune have of him of this this kind of neo thoreau this kind of neo uh transcendentalist trans paranoiac this idea of american privacy well it right that they have yeah he can't go back out we we should uh, read some of their ideas i I think in the voice of opal first about revolutionary solitude but well happy valley farm commune i mean they they have the potential for dog boys uh, in them. AKA brown shirts. Brown shirts. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about our kind of theories, pet theories of, of the novel. I mean, I really think it's the weather underground and the weathermen that, um, as they were variously called that Delillo has in mind with the, the happy Valley farm commune that not only did they appropriate Dylan's lyric, um, in a way that I think Delillo probably finds offensive on behalf of artists. You know, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And then they become this domestic terrorist force. I think Happy Valley Farm Commune is, is, you know, a kind of exploration again, with lots of other accents of um, this kind of seeming American idealism that has, you know, uh, terrorism incipient. Yes. Uh, within it that what could be more American or more um, kind of progressive than wanting to preserve, you know, this founding ideal of, of solitude with this opening. We still have plenty to we do. do. We could look at 60 as well. 60 is great at the bottom there. Yeah. Yeah. Happy Valley thinks privacy is the essential freedom. This nation country or Republic offered in the beginning. They think you exemplify some old idea of men alone with the land. You stepped out of your legend to pursue personal freedom. There is no freedom, according to them, without privacy. The return of the private man, according to them, is the only way to destroy the notion of mass man. Mass man ruined our freedoms for us. Turning inward will get them back. Revolutionary solitude. Turn inward, one and all. Isolate yourself mentally, spiritually, and physically. On and on, world without end. Sustain your privacy with aggressive self-defense. <laughs> Killer, I said. Killer ideas. Heavier than cotton candy. Puts me in the mood to read something. About time I read something. What do you have in the house that I can read? What do you want to read about? People, places, or things? Things I said. <laughs> it's funny. Well, it's just yeah, it's funny because it takes to an extreme or inverts. Oh gosh, I mean, is the idea of a republic, a nation, a country? It, a yes, I mean, it's a kind of way of insisting on the republic, insisting on the civic and the the communal, while simultaneously using that basis to evacuate the fact that those are shared ideas. So, you know, as you're reading it, I start to think, well, this is so very American, this uh, <laughs> triumph of individualism above all, while 
committing acts and attending speeches and being in uh, crowds uh, of great masses. You know, this is a kind of mass identity that is being proposed here in the name of individual freedom. There's just, it's just the, I feel like I need to come back to this, but it's just such an American contradiction that, you know, really speaks to ongoing problems within the American mind. Which the weird thing is that mass man ruining the freedoms for the, there's an inherent contradiction here and that mass man is somehow stamping out individuality. And yet it's the compact that mass man needs to make that guarantees that personal freedom. So it's revolutionary solitude, right? Yes. Underscoring revolution here. You know, right. It, uh, it's a fallacy in other words. I mean, it's a kind of miniature version of how DeLillo often speaks through these ideas of, of how the primitive has come back in an advanced society in a technologically advanced society that the, the, further forward we think we're going, the more the old um, and primitive comes back. Here, it's almost like, you know, the 17th, the 18th century is the, is standing, is doing some of the same work of, of, of the primitive and, and being this kind of, well, sustain your privacy with aggressive self-defense. <laughs> it's obviously antisocial. It's antisocial in mm-hmm. the very nature yeah, because in, of in that. Fennig with his shotguns or, uh, in his, in his dogs, uh, in his apartment is, is almost a kind of embodiment of the, this thinking, the terminal fantasy. But I, I wanted to say that I think Delo's working out something that it's not yet fully here, but it makes you think of him saying that after, after Bobby Thompson's home run in 51, everybody went out into the street to, to celebrate in the underworld. And then after Kennedy's assassination, everybody went inside to watch TV. And I think that revolutionary solitude is historically specific to um, a TV age. That, you know, and I don't think TV is here, but it does um, speak to a kind of what DeLillo seems across the career to be registering as you know, a shift past the 1950s toward a kind of aloneness that um, is driven by media culture. You know, there are lines in white noise that are about that, about we each went into our rooms and didn't talk to each other <laughs> uh, and so on. And I think this is, a, you know, what's present here is Bucky calls these killer ideas. And indeed, it's like Texas Highway killer uh, ideas. It's about being. Um, yeah, a, a, a kind of revolutionary individual kills members of the community, uh, in a sense. And that's, you know, uh, I know we'll, we'll probably talk a bit later about what this book has to do with the present. I think this is very much a kind of present, uh, issue, this, uh, kind of second amendment obsessed, uh, culture that, uh, speaks this kind of language. Absolutely. Uh, it is in, in the language of the American Revolution, right? As well, I need to add that you know, killer, killer ideas. He's obviously not buying it, right? He's obviously bored. Yeah, what? heavier than cotton candy, right? It's, he's he's quite unfazed by 
puts me in the mood to read something about time I read something. What do you have in this house that I can that I can read? It's it, it, this is what another hint I think that we're seeing a kind of culture becoming television media obsessed. You know that that and Bucky is, is sort of I think part of that, um, but not in a kind of simple way. And and of course we we think as the little readers ahead to you know, white noise and it's wonders, but he's kind of always interested in this kind of anti book, (laughs) anti reading culture uh, of media and so on. On that note, uh, we do have Fennig Mm -hmm. who is, we haven't uh, given enough time to Eddie Fennig. He's (laughs) frantically trying to corner the market. He does have ideas on TV. That is to say, doesn't like it very much. Uh, what are we to make of, of this character? He gets quite a bit of airtime. He gets, yeah. I would say he's a, he's a fundamental part of this book and one of my favorite characters, uh, just generally speaking, throughout, okay. throughout DeLillo. Very quotable. Very quotable, um, extremely neurotic and coffee obsessed. He is, he's an, he's an affable guy. He does have some unsavory places that his career drives him to <laughs> that he himself is aware of. If, if I were to broach this subject, I would say that personally speaking, Fennig is a character that DeLillo, the writer does have fondness. Yeah. For. Yeah. And that, and that this does shine through. This is a moment where DeLillo, the writer has a chance to, to write about some of the, the foibles and, and oddities and absurdities of becoming, trying to become a professional novelist. Yeah, <laughs> there is some self-reflection. There is. In fact, that no, DeLillo is not secretly writing pornography involving children, which is, his, <laughs> which is Fennig's great ambition, right? And his, uh, I, I sort of, he has a million words in the trunk and yet he's going to start the, the, the novel of, um, of, uh, brutal sexy yes brutal sexy oh my gosh the, the, the transgressiveness of this <laughs> writing about this writing he's it, it, he's done in by the market he understands the market and yet he's undone by it I think is the the kind of way in which he's well he's parallel to Bucky yes. that because you know there's a kind of inescapability of the the fame market MIFA. Uh, it, it'll happen, but then it won't. Yeah. But it'll happen, but if but it doesn't, but it, it, yeah, he's a, he's a figure of great uh, kind of vulnerability Absolutely. and variability. He's honest uh, there. Um, yeah, you know, I've I've said to you, I think there's a little bit of Delillo producing this third novel, turning to new material as we've laid out, you mm-hmm. know, and, and turning to New York and thinking about his own place in the market. I mean. You know, we haven't gone back and looked at the numbers per se, but DeLillo had to be, I think, disappointed with the sales of those first two novels, wouldn't you? You know, the books where he was greeted as a as a great, uh, you know, as a, as a very good writer, a new arrival, great reviews, but I don't think he's uh, breaking the bank, you know. And, and I mean, the larger story of DeLillo's... Uh, Development, of course, is that you know, white noise is the the big the breakthrough, the 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 book that really puts him on the map, and maybe the story of producing three novels in three years 
is uh, in part a story of wanting to preempt the market, corner the market, it preempts the market niche, uh, as is how Fennig would put it, the absurdity of all this, the extremity uh, of the ritualization. Fennig. Is yeah, is something that is uh, well the object of, of satire. We have the let's call them maybe hyper hyper linguistic uh, Fennig on the third floor, yeah, and we've got Mikkel White's kid, yeah. who is how should, I don't want to say the, the lower animal in a in a sense in that non linguistic right? yeah. at all, and uh, right. here we have. Is it a type of counter-archaeology? I'm not sure, but we have... Mm-hmm. One of the beautiful things about the, the building in Great Jones Street is there's this type of stratification of uh, orientation to the world. On the top, Fennig, who is the man in the room, he's pacing, he's sniffing coffee grounds. He, he doesn't really leave the building, yeah. it seems. We've got Bucky in hiding. He does leave, but he's also... Uh, his solitude is penetrated by multiple interlopers, et cetera, et cetera. We've got Michael White's kid on the, on the bottom floor. And he, it does seem, it does seem like the bottom, the bottom floor in many, many senses of, of what that could be for a human life. Yeah. That the, the, right. I mean, and just to or counter, what is counter archeology? I feel like we should stay sure. that, that it's this image of the real digging to be done by future archaeologists is of the skyline, essentially. They will study us not by digging into the earth. This is on 209. They will study us not by digging into the earth, but by climbing vast dunes of industrial rubble and mutilated steel, seeking to reach the tops of our buildings. Here they'll chip lovingly at our spires, mansards, turrets, parapets, belfries, water tanks, flower pots, pigeon lofts, and chimneys. Uh, I turn us off on Broadway. Scaling our masonry, they will identify the encrustations of 20th century art and culture decade by decade, each layer simple enough to compare with the detritus at ground level, our shattered bank vaults, cash registers, safes, locks, electrified alarm systems, and armored vehicles back in their universities in the earth. The counter-archaeologists will sort their reasons for our demise, citing as prominent the fact that We stored our beauty in the air for birds of prey to see while placing at eye level nothing more edifying than hardware, machinery, and the implements of torture. Um, Is this a kind of, this isn't by Tudev Nemku, but it is a kind of journey to the center of the earth, some kind of sci-fi scenario. H.G. Wells. In which we're living under under the surface of the earth, and it's the the perhaps contaminated world outside. I mean, we have shattered bank vaults as though there's been a kind of apocalyptic undoing of the toxic airborne order. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's such a great image because it's, it's inverting archeology. span It's kind of doing so many things, but I think you're right that the apartment building with its three floors is a kind of, first model of that or a sort of more mundane version of this kind of um, interest in the top and the bottom motion and stasis motion on the top end and stasis on the bottom. And, yeah. Uh, and Bucky is a kind of figure of balance then. I mean, he takes Fennig's tight circles of pacing. We, he refers to them as running 
at certain <laughs> running one point. Yeah. But as, uh, you know, a kind of model, Bucky does go in these, I think it, they're described as ever-widening circles that I think uh, evoke not only Fennig on his walks, right, evoke Fennig's uh, pacing and uh, on a bigger and better scale, but also the, the record on the, on the record player that he, in a sense, has to escape, right? He has to well, circle into word time as one of the lyric mm. lyrics goes, but also I think, um, you know, kind of go out of that orbit in a way that, um, um, you know, would keep him kind of, um, well, tied to his career, you know, because uh, at the end, he's... Wanting to get back out. Yeah, and yet I, I think it's a question for every reader as to whether we think that will happen, whether we think that will kind of, you know, uh, be a good outcome for him, you know, uh, uh, and so on. Bucky resists, like, the, the sainthood uh, tag, the the hagiography of it all, but this is some, what am I trying to articulate here? It's not a dark night of the soul, but it's, is, is, is there a hero's quest here? Is there a, I, I learned something from Fennig. I learned something from Mingle White's kid. I've somehow, I've got, I've got it all. Something integration. Of, yes, of exactly. Self, the balance of, of self. Yeah. I feel like he does absolutely learn something from his encounter with, with the Nickelback kid. There's, there's that. Well, he's maybe, I mean, the taking the drug is seeking to imitate him, become him. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a, a quote unquote lunar pull that Nickelback's kid has. There is, he does see a, a beauty in that person. I think he sees himself. There's a lot going on in that scene, but it's a real testament to Bucky as an artist, but also Bucky as a person that he, he goes up and like looks, looks in the eye of, of Nickel White's kid. It's a, it's an amazing moment that, like you mentioned, presages the, the taking of the drug, but the lyrics of baby God and goo, this, this type of, mm-hmm. the, the, the pre-linguistic babble. Of course, Nickelwhite's kid isn't even saying that much, but he typifies this pre-linguistic, sub-linguistic appreciation of the world. The essence is, the, the material is the essence. Yeah. It feels like Nickelwhite would be a part of this way of understanding the world. Yeah. And being, I mean, the great, Dillolo kind of theme and question is um, the ways we avoid embodied experience, the way the McWhite boy, you know, presents the necessity of, of inhabiting the body and it, um, you know, the impossibility of avoiding that. Well, I'm thinking of the lines that uh, lead up to Bucky saying, man, the primate and his 40,000 years of violence um, it be, it all begins, a uh, certain kind of violence begins in abstract thought that, that, and then we get the kind of very strange turn of, of dialogue where I think it's Bohack who says, then you have violence for nothing. And Bucky says nonviolence <laughs> as though that's a kind of equation that, he, right. that he's making that uh, right. a violence of nothing for nothing is nonviolence. I mean, I think that's the, the, the kind of evidence of, uh, the twisting of 
of values uh, of the counterculture of America in in Happy Valley Farm Comedy, you know, which I have to say the entirety of apparently every time. Uh, That's a great point. I, I also want to add that uh, with the Mickle White Boy, I feel like there is or was a, a temptation or a trap to, to romanticize that uh, encounter or to, I mean, maybe to gloss or sugarcoat, but I don't feel like that happens. Uh, not only because the Mrs. Mickle White at the end of a very <laughs> lyrical passage mentions yeah. careful he bites. Yeah, that's why it's so Careful he bites. Exactly. I mean, there is that great DeLillo capacity to always undermine the lyrical fights. I mean, I noticed that right after your, the passage you read from Haynes about music being dangerous, the next sentence is something like, it was snowing on the street or something like that. You know, that, that yeah, hey, it, it's a way of like shocking us back into pay attention to the mundane details of what's going on around you and, and the kind of denial of weather is a great, um, you know, to little trope for people who are kind of out of, out of touch Absolutely. Um, with uh, the real in, in, in some key ways. I, I would say, you know, that the, the Micklewhite boy is almost, I think the younger novelist probably of great Jones street, you know, that DeLillo in later works would look back on that and, uh, portrayal and say, well, I can get some of this by um, some of this material out in new ways by, by creating these child characters who have a fuller life, but are still sort of pre or proto linguistic wilder and white noise tap in the names. Yeah. Yes. I mean, those are the kind of more, productive, generative characters, right? Make it yeah. like drum dramatize and bring them in to mm -hmm. the world rather than keep them in the closet. Yeah. Keep them obscured for 160 pages and then have this one great scene. Yeah. Michael White, Michael White's kid is more of an idea than, mm -hmm. than a character. And I think you're right that the more mature novelist that the little becomes, yanks those ideas into people mm -hmm. to, to their credit and, and to the, the benefit of the book. Yeah. As well. Yeah. I guess I'm also looking ahead to, um, uh, Mr. Tuttle and, uh, and the body artists as I think about this too, that, that there are the, there are various ways to get to this kind of state that's almost impossible to write about, which is, um, you know, the self without language. The untellable way. Yeah. Right. And so this is the great issue. He keeps yeah. in various ways. I feel like it's a, it's a fascinating exercise for a writer to consider what it's like to lose language. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting for anybody in any walk of life to consider yeah, that. Or to be but, on the verge of acquiring it in a way that, you know, Jack Lightney can, only know enough German to get barely past his speech, <laughs> but the, you know, that, that state of unease that all language learners exist in is something that, you know, Dilla is kind of obsessed with, I guess. Yeah. And in contrast to aphasia or the loss of language mm -hmm. or sublinguistic uh, abilities, the enigmatic Dr. Pepper, <laughs> Fred chess figure who is described by Menifee, who 
who introduces him multiple times and kind of talk. I think that Menifee describes himself as a human thought module <laughs> once. He's this kind of like empty receptacle that is just shaped by Dr. Pepper. Menifee talks multiple times at how Dr. Pepper is a master of, of the voice inflections and, mm. and vocabularies and shape shifting. Exactly. So we have this kind of arch nemesis figure who seems to be, he's not a writer. He's not a musician, but he's socially flexible <laughs> to the, he's socially adept to the point that, uh, he's, he's not a ventriloquist. He's, he's a puppet master, not only of himself, it seems, but of multiple people around him. He's a, he's a master of dialect and of, of discourse. It seems like he's this, this talker. <laughs> yeah. Although maybe not sort of all powerful in a, in a way. I mean, that name chess and, and I think we agree that we can't ultimately know if, if somehow his disguise abilities allow him to lose four inches of height or, or what's going on with that. But certainly he seems to me that, you know, the name chess evoked Fred chess uh, as wacky a name as that is evokes Nabokov uh, Claire Quilty as the great linguistic nemesis in a sense of uh, Humbert uh, in Lolita and I think DeLillo's kind of um, just going to be going go goes back to the, the way in which Lolita ends again and again that you know, white noise owes a debt to the shooting of, of Quilty but the the key thing for you know what you're bringing out is that it's mastery of discourse it's the ability to create language that um is always kind of at issue in these rival figures or antagonist figures who get revealed um you know later in, in these novels and and again i think great jones street is is just a kind of you know, it's the seed of a lot of later, better endings, uh, in a sense, in, in DeLillo. Um, not to say that this ending isn't spectacular in its own way with, with the coming back to language. But we should get to that. read some of it. We yeah, should get to yeah. that ending. Yeah. There's so much in this last chapter that, including Yapples, uh, which is at the top of, uh, comes back again at the top of 264, just a page and a half from the end and you know these are the yapples of uh, from the you know the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden of eden that uh, you know that are being uh, sold here on the on the street but and uh, isn't it great like, that there's no quotation marks around these there it's almost mm-hmm. like this speech is part of the landscape it's not marked as and no punctuation either. Yeah. Right? You're buying, I'm selling the apples, <laughs> the apples, the apples. So it's a thing. It's like what what mm-hmm. I see here, we've got He's using the all caps. Yeah, we've got like mouth noises. Mm-hmm. We've got speech, but it's also bringing it back to the sound. We've got we've got the music we've got the musical instrument of our own human hood on mm-hmm. display here, our voice boxes, our voices. Yeah. There's just a thinginess to, yeah. to this uh, shouting. It's great. I mean, right, and there's kind of breaking of 
the bonds of boundaries of convention on the, on the prose page that, you know, a sort of envy of the, the sound or concrete poetry person who can uh, just put words down, doesn't need the sentences yeah. to be there and, and so on. You've also got on 262, the man, hand, foot, arm, God, nose, toe, face, God, leg, arm, leg, God, see it, see it, rain, twain, cane, pain, brain, slain, sane, gain, vein, see it, see it, mouth, eye, teeth, God, etc., etc. It's see it in the darkness and the light. I mean, it's another of these mission statements that I think we've been, or imperatives, right? That, that Delillo is addressing himself as to what will renew his, his own, you know, art, uh, as well as uh, exploring Bucky coming out of this language yeah. Uh, yeah. coma. <laughs> yeah, and that's contact. That's hearing the tapping on the other side of the wall, mm-hmm. I think. It's a, it's a type of, it's a type of reception. It's a type of, not even necessarily response, but yeah, I think contact is a good way of, of summing up from yeah, how I see and, it. And, and I'm right in that the apple seller is blind and sort of counts out. Oh no, it's the blind news dealer I'm thinking of from the, the previous page where he, his fingers are working their heat into every coin. Right. Um, that you know, the the room originally is described as cold as a penny, right? And, and I think there's a kind of return, yeah. You know, let us return human warmth to the money system in a way. No, I think you're right about that. Valence of this, that's beautiful. Um, yeah. Well, we need. I think we need to read about the double defeat that we might. Yeah, you, t- you take that one. Uh, start a little bit wherever you think is best. How about I was unreasonably happy subsisting in blessed circumstances about a third of the way down yep. the page there. Okay. Go ahead. I was unreasonably happy subsisting in blessed circumstance, thinking of myself as a kind of living chant. I made interesting and original <laughs> sounds. I looked out the window and moaned quietly at the lumbering trucks below and at the painters and sculptors now occupying windows across the way, placid faces suspended over Great Jones Street. But whatever else it was, the drug was less than lasting in its effect. Mouth was the first word to reach me, dropping from one speech mechanism to the other. It happened while I was looking at my face in the mirror, examining its strange parts, Hanu, Us, Leb, Oog, Naka. And when I opened my mouth, out came the word for that part, word instead of sound, mouth startling me. More words followed, and when I spoke them aloud, the sound waves reached my brain in proper coded notes, and I was able to comprehend what had passed between my tongue and inner ear. Soon all was normal, a return to prior modes. This was my double defeat. First, a chance not taken to reappear in the midst of people and forces made to my design, and then a second enterprise denied, alternate to the first permanent withdrawal to that unimprinted level where all sound is silken and nothing erodes in the mad weather of language. Several weeks of immense serenity then ended, but I see no reason to announce the news. Let viscid history suck me down a bit. When the season is right, I'll return to whatever is out there. It's just a question of what sound to make or fake. Meanwhile, the rumors accumulate. Kidnap exile, torture, self-mutilation, and death. 
the most beguiling of the rumors has me living among beggars and syphilitics, performing good works, patron saint of all those men who hear the river whistles sing the mysteries and who return to sleep in wine by the south wheel of the city. Fate the black. Oof. <laughs> yeah, woof. <laughs> Warp. Warp, as Fennig would say. Right, yeah, so woof is an end zone word. That's right. Um, There's a lot here. Yeah. I know that the double defeat is maybe where you want to end. I think Double D is Don DeLillo's nickname because we have one of the plays in end zone is called Double D to right, <laughs> as in the direction. But it, it's a um, it's a little self nod to himself, and there's kind of archival material that suggests that he was referring to himself as Double D. <laughs> and you know, this has been a mysterious sentence to me, I know to us as readers. But I think what we're seeing with this double defeat, where we would say, like, no, what is the loss here? Is um, a double D feat as a, a kind of exploit, an achievement. I, I think that makes a lot of sense as a kind of like, you know, why not? DeLillo's earned it by this last page to be able to say, um, look, in breaking down this man into this level that is kind of, you know, he's admitting inaccessible to the writer, to the adult user of language, he's created a, a, a feat. And, and I can't say that I can really map the entirety of the sentence, but it, in, in those terms, but it, it strikes me as a pun. And, you know, DeLillo is very interested in losses that are victories or, or that tension, you know, that, that the loser figure in, in end zone in this, in the other sports novel, say of underworld is, um, something that he wants to kind of juxtapose with a culture that's obsessed with winning and victory and victory and wars and so on and so forth. I love that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, you know what I noticed on this one too, is that maybe if we knew more about the kind of exact history of great Jones street, then notice that painters and sculptors now occupying windows across the way as though like, the story of Great Jones Street has been maybe this is like Basquiat Studio or something like that, that that we see that painting being kind of delivered across the street, that this is a kind of animation of the larger street uh, in the direction of, of art, um, not just Bucky's story. Which, you know, you know art traditionally non-linguistic medium of, ah, of yeah. expression. Right? Yeah, yeah, to be a painter is to... Uh, work in silence uh, by yeah. nature, I suppose. Work with yeah. images, work with materials, being the essence of uh, the essence of things. I like that. Yeah, working in wood and yarn and so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do want to to note here that, or at least maybe maybe ask you, is he saying that it is a defeat to return to language? That his reintroduction, the the return yeah. to prior modes, the eroding the erosion of the mad weather of language yeah nothing all sound is silken and nothing erodes in the mad weather of language he's saying that he misses yeah in some ways yeah that's 
That's now that is the untellable that we are it shutting is. up against. Yeah, here. yeah. I lo- I like how unimprinted suggests a kind of infantile state too. That the the animal before it imprints on the mother, famously, I guess, is but unimprinted as well as as a conjuring of an oral culture before print. You know that that Delillo is a kind of, um, you know, I mean, he clearly loves books, but he also loves invoking a, a sort of time before books um, as the kind of great wellspring of, of what he's uh, kind of after. That's beautiful. Way. Yeah. Several weeks of immense serenity. Yeah. That is, <laughs> the, the, if, it, if, you know, what is Gary's word? Apotheosis. Where he, <laughs> that this is it. Yes. You know, this is being a kind of bodhisattva or something Absolutely. like that. You know? to be a uh, pre-language and yet to come out of it, you know, um, so, essentially. So can we say that uh, you met, you mentioned this point earlier before we press play, but I want to, to bring it back. If I may, you said something to the effect that DeLillo as novelist gets to forgive me if I'm paraphrasing here, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, not only does, uh, DeLillo gets to, assert the the power, the primacy of the novel, of the writer, by creating a musician, creating musical lyrics, theorizing music, but housing that within the book in a similar way that he did with Football and Endzone, in a similar way that he did with film in Americana. The novel is the best. It is the it is Okay. Well, as um, Bill Gray will say it's the the democratic shout. Everybody has <laughs> one novel in them, right? I, I, I do. Yeah, I think that that that, that the novel. Well, if you know more about uh, Bakhtin, say that than I do. That I mean, it seems like one premise in Bakhtin is that the novel is able to assimilate or absorb so many voices and other artistic forms that, you know, uh, Circe and, and Ulysses is a great example of that, right? That's right, Brown. Um, that, yeah, and that Delillo does it all in a much more, I think, controlled way than uh, Ulysses ever would, although we have Radnor Starr coming up, maybe we'll come up with that. <laughs> I want to yeah. subvert that. Don't that speak idea. too soon. Yeah, um, but I think there is this kind of, um, yeah, ability expressed across these novels to take um, what are importantly kind of the popular forms of the day, film, sports as entertainment, I think, and music, um, you know, especially rock, popular music, as um, things that the novel can uh, sort of explain um, and also subvert the kind of naturally profit oriented, uh, ease, easy media nature of them. Consumer culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's, that's wonderfully said. In addition to that point, DeLillo also seems to be saying here, he, he deconstructs the very language that he puts so much faith in as a writer. And it's that, it's that double articulation that, uh, I feel is is endlessly fascinating and also very 
maybe humble is, is the wrong way of, of putting it. There's something very honest about checking the megalomania of the artist coming up against the limit and saying, let your, let your imagination go, go further, go beyond. It's almost like he's, he's pointing to the beyond here. And to end the book on that, on that somber note on the last page is uh, such a, such an amazing move. Yeah. Well, we don't have a manuscript accumulating on the table as we did in Americana. Right. And yet there is still that sense here that, um, I don't know that, that, that Bucky has become the writer in a way and being able to articulate his journey in, in these ways. I, I, I just want to, you know, put this book in a class with Invisible Man by Ellison that when he says, when the season is right, I'll return to whatever is out there, which is, um, you know, the, the kind of move of the epilogue of Invisible Man, you know, this question of um, him being down in his, in his hole, writing the novel that we see before us. Although again, that is implied more than seen to be uh, enacted and that there's a kind of, just a power in that sort of, I, I suppose I just kind of really like that implication that um, what we're seeing is strangely not just a first person narration, but the kind of, um, you know, becoming of a, of an artist figure um, who has provided us with this, this novel, but this is, you know, I'm kind of playing fast and loose with kind of divisions of between character and author and, uh, you know, portrayals of art, um, in, in the novel, but it's so great to have it be the scene of, um, well, the loss of language, but the feat of making the book, you know, coming uh, back, uh, of coming back to, to us, to, and to articulation, to communicate the social, yeah, the social yeah. organism, the social, yeah, which is what the order. novel is always greatest at, you know, of evoking that, uh, that kind of sense of social connectivity. Um, even as we read these things in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're talking about it. That's right. Right. That's why we're talking about it. I think, we, yeah, I think we've made the case for reading great Jones street again. I mean, you, you know, because you've heard me go on about it, that it's just one of my favorite, Delillo's, and I, I think we've made a good case for, for that, but uh, it won't be the only case we make for the greatness of Delillo. I don't think so. I feel like it it remains elusive. It remains elusive enough to, to warrant coming back to it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's uh, so many moving parts that are riddled with, you know, just like the previous two we've read, so many poignant moments, poignant Ideas almost like interrupting and how you know, crazy they are sometimes that uh, the mind struggles to to keep these pieces in order yeah. uh, in any one reading. And yeah. I know reading it this time was different for me uh, than the first time, as it should be, as as books that are complex and uh, skillfully 
constructed uh, should operate. If Delillo read this again, he would <laughs> he would be it, reading it. It was too long ago. <laughs> I do not remember it at all. Or at least that seems to be what he says in interviews, right? All so long ago.